0: It's Wednesday, February 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The NTSB has concluded its investigation into the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others, and said that it was the decision of the pilot to fly into the clouds that caused him to lose his orientation to the ground, which led to them flying into the hillside. Ian Duncan, transportation reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what investigators said contributed to this fatal crash. Next, how much does it cost for treatment of some of the most severe cases of coronavirus? For one woman, it cost over $1.3 million before insurance covered a large portion, leaving her still to owe over $42,000. The trouble lies in the fact that despite some insurers waiving certain costs, people may still be on the hook for a percentage which adds up quickly. Maria Laganga, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for more. Finally, a recent study has shown that the UK coronavirus variant is indeed rapidly spreading to the United States and supports a CDC forecast that it could be the dominant strain here by late March. Experts are worried that the easing of restrictions by some states might let this more transmissible strain continue to take hold. Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for more on the spread of COVID variants. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in pilot
1: had a good relationship with the client and likely did not want to disappoint him by not completing the flight. This kind of self-induced pressure can adversely affect pilot decision-making.
2: Joining
0: us now is Ian Duncan, transportation reporter at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Yeah, thanks for having me. Federal investigators have concluded their investigation into the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and I think it was nine people total, so seven others. They concluded that the pilot, Ara Zobayan, failed to follow his training, and uh, he became disoriented, and that's really what caused the whole crash. So, Ian, tell us what the NTSB has said about all of this.
2: So they had a long meeting today where they kind of set out all the evidence and then formally adopted the conclusion where they placed the blame pretty squarely on the pilot. They said that he shouldn't have flown into the clouds, and if he did... He should have followed a kind of set of procedures that involved slowing down and kind of carefully trying to climb out before declaring he was in an emergency situation and then he could have got help to kind of navigate back to somewhere safely. Instead, he flew in at high speed and was kind of turning, which led to him getting disorientated and and basically feeling as though he was climbing when the helicopter was in fact falling. And that's why the helicopter then crashed into this mountainside there.
0: The NTSB said that between 2010 and 2019, they investigated 184 similar crashes, 20 of them involved helicopters, and a lot of them had this very same thing where, you know, the pilot kind of lost disorientation. Tell us a little bit more about it, if you can. It has to do with the inner ear. I think they call it the leans, where you just basically lose place of yourself and flying in the clouds, you don't have any point of reference, really. I think, obviously,
2: people will be familiar with the feeling of being dizzy and you can be flying in such a way that your body can't work out whether you're sort of tilting to the side or moving up or down or exactly how you're moving through space. And normally we can kind of compensate for this by looking at like where is the ground, where is the horizon. But once you're in clouds, you can't do that because you just can't see anything. And so you can become extremely disoriented and What they're saying in this case is, you know, helicopters have instruments where they can tell you the kids where the helicopter is pointing and and how it's oriented in space. But if you're not prepared to kind of switch over to that and look at that and know to trust that over what your body is telling you, you can just get confused very easily and some proportion of these incidents, people end up crashing.
0: Now, one of the other parts of it, the board members all concluded as well. They said that he had a, a sudden loss of judgment, basically And because he was a friend of Kobe Bryant, he felt maybe the pressure to have to go on with the flight, to complete the flight, and that that probably played a role because he did have training for this type of weather and terrain and things like that. And he didn't use his best judgment, maybe because he was trying to please him or something.
2: That's right. Yeah, they talked about this pressure. They're sort of inferring this, they obviously don't have any evidence from him that he had put this pressure on himself and that as you sort of get closer to your destination, if you haven't thought ahead in about alternatives that you might take if something unexpected happens, you get into this kind of plan following bias that gets stronger and stronger and it becomes harder for you to kind of think, right, I need to stop and do something different. And so they cited that as one of the con- contributing factors to what happened here. And they said this happens with high profile clients. that pilots want to Impress them and do a good job. I think you sort of imagine the dynamic and that they thought that this was at play.
0: The helicopter itself did not have a black box. There are recommendations that, you know, a lot of helicopters should have these terrain warning systems that could help notify you, you know, if you're getting too close to a hillside, things like that. But even the NTSB said that even if that was in place for this particular incident, that that might not have helped. It might have even been more confusing.
2: The NTSB board member who went to California to... To oversee the investigation last year. She kind of brought it up at a news conference and it has become something that has been written about a lot. There's been legislation introduced in Congress about it and, and it's phrase it makes sense. Oh, well, if a system tells you, hey, you're about to crash, like maybe that would stop this kind of crash. But what they really were at pains to make clear today at the board meeting is Those systems only work when the pilot is really in control of the helicopter. And in this case, he wasn't in control. The helicopter was essentially out of his control. And so any warning wouldn't have really helped him recover the situation.
0: The investigation was a little bit over a year. You know, they used a drone to recreate the flight path. You know, so they do their due diligence when they go through these types of investigations. And, you know, there's a bunch of lawsuits. Obviously, things kind of come up from this. Our condolences go out to all the family members and everything. But these are other things that still need to be resolved. Vanessa Bryant has sued the helicopter company. So these are all things that we have to look into. And the NTSB's conclusions can't be used as evidence in lawsuits, which I found was pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if you were to look at the facts that the NTSB kind of put together... They would support Ms. Bryant's claims probably more than those made by the company, but the rules are sort of pretty clear that you can use some of the factual information that was developed in the investigation, but you can't just put the conclusion in front of you know, a jury and say, well, here's what the NTSB said, so you have to agree that they want the jury to be able to kind of reach an independent judgment. The lawsuits have not really moved forward because there's a sort of procedural issue about the federal government's involvement in that. So they Probably continue to play out over the coming months
0: and years. Ian Duncan, transportation reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank
3: you. Almost half of them either never waived bills, the copays, or the waivers have expired.
0: So going in, you don't really know what you're going to have to pay on the, you know, coming out. Joining us now is Maria Laganga, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Maria. My pleasure. One of the things I've always been interested throughout this pandemic is about how treatment for COVID-19 is calculated and will get paid. And we've heard some stories of people getting really high bills. We've heard other stories about supposedly insurers are waiving all of the COVID expenses, it's kind of run the gamut really. But Maria, you wrote an article looking into a couple people, but mostly a woman named Patricia Mason up in Vacaville. And the bill that she had for her coronavirus treatment, it ended up being $1,339,181.94. Uh, she's really on the hook for $42,000, a little bit over that. But you know, even then, her and her family, they don't know how they're going to pay for it. Maria, tell us a little bit about how this all works.
3: I wish I could tell you about how it works. I think patients and hospitals are pretty much confused about what to do and how to do it because there is no real codified way that patient care is being paid for. The most expensive patients are the ones who are in hospitals for a very long time on ventilators on you know a machine called the ECMO machine which can bypass your heart and lungs and all of these are you know $30,000 a day for that kind of care and the problem is is that the federal government through the CARES Act it basically requires that testing is paid for and that the vaccine will be paid for it also covers more or less uninsured people. It's complicated, hospitals have to apply, and it's kind of a finite pool of money, but they are better off. But insurance companies, many of them, have voluntarily waived all co-pays. So like, if your insurance will pay 95% of your hospital stay and you're on the hook for 5%, a hospital that waives that will waive your 5% and will waive your co-pays and will waive your deductibles. Which is great. The problem is it's voluntary. And these waivers, a lot of them have end dates on them. Uh, in looking at the website for, I think it's called, it's AHIP, American Health Insurance Plans. It's an industry trade group. They have a list of like a, a, just under 150 medical plans. And almost half of them either never waived bills, the copays, or the waivers have expired. So going in, you don't really know. What you're going to have to pay on the, you know, coming out. And the other part about this that's interesting is that under Obamacare, certain insurance companies are required to have a cap on your out of pocket expenses. Those caps are, I think for 2021, it's $17,000. Now, that's a chunk of change too. I mean, a lot of families can't come up with $17,000 quickly. And then Mrs. Mason, her plan, because it was it's a plan that was grandfathered in before the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, there's no out-of-pocket maximum. So that's why she's on the hook for $42,000.
0: Back to Patricia Mason's case. I mean, she really got it worse. At one point, the doctors attending her called her husband and said she had less than a 30% chance of surviving COVID-19. She had to be put on the ventilator. She had a really tough go at it, She is out, obviously. She's recovered, but she still has lingering effects, you know, brain fog and swollen joints and, uh, you know, pain and all that. So that could even be other medical bills further on. Who knows if any of that will be covered? But obviously in her main stay, whatever they were treating her with, pharmacy charges, respiratory services, just staying in the intensive care units there, those things really racked up the bill. And as you mentioned, her insurance paid for a lot of it. I think it paid 95% of it. She still had to pay 5%, but that was still this huge number for her?
3: 5% of more than a million dollars is a lot of money. You know, I don't know that many people who have $42,000 to spare or even not to spare, you know? I mean, one of the things that the Federal Reserve in a report that came out in May said is that, you know, 19% of, of U.S. adults either lost a job or had their hours cut last March, which was, you know, the first big, intense, surge. And 18% of adults had medical debt even before the pandemic started. So they're up a creek.
0: Maria LaGanga, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us.
3: My pleasure. Have a good day.
1: We are in a position globally that we're detecting these mutations. We know they're there. We have vaccine technology that potentially can overcome them.
0: Joining us now is Joel Achenbach, science reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Joel.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We have kind of this uh, good news, bad news thing with coronavirus. We're seeing numbers of cases going down. We're seeing hospitalizations go down. All great news. the, The vaccine rollout is ramping up. We're starting to get about a million a day now, it seems, It's starting to get a little better on that front, but these coronavirus variants are still very concerning. We just have a new study out with some uh, information on the UK variant, basically saying that it's doubling the infections it has here in the United States every week, and uh, we already saw the CDC say that by March, this probably will be the dominant strain here in the United States. All the info is pointing to that. So, Joel, tell us a little bit more
1: it is a good news, bad news situation. I am trying to focus on the good, which you laid out very nicely there, which is the numbers are going down. We are emerging from this catastrophic and very long surge that began, you know, back in October, the surge in cases and hospitalizations and deaths, the final part of that, the deaths are only now starting to Go down, but you know we were having 3,000 or more people die every day of COVID, and and so there's a natural sort of epidemiological wave where you eventually you hit a peak and the numbers start to come down for various reasons, including so many people have already gotten the virus and so on. So, but now we enter this new factor, the variant. So, what's it going to do? Well, it's not going to help. It may not cause another surge. That's a complicated equation, but it does look like it's more transmissible. And the B117, the so called UK variant, is spreading in the US.
0: When we talk about location in the United States, we see that Florida has the highest estimated prevalence of this variant, and I think California might be after them.
1: California has a fair number of cases, just a raw number of cases, but it was not doubling in speed as fast as Florida, or as a matter of fact, as fast as the country on the whole. I guess because California may be a little better about restrictions because it's gone through this whole crisis with so many cases recently, the big surge. The statistic is a little hard to grasp. When we say it's doubling, we're talking about its prevalence among positive test results. So just a few weeks ago, it was less than 1% of positive test results, infections, confirmed infections, less than 1% was this UK variant. Now it's close to 10% in Florida, so it's just taken off like crazy. About every 9.8 days nationally, this variant doubles in prevalence, so it's on track to become essentially just take over and become the dominant strain that's moving around. That doesn't mean that every 9.8 days, there's going to be twice as many coronavirus infections because these other strains are going down.
0: And here's the other good news, bad news thing about it when it comes to the other strains. So the UK strain seems to be more prevalent now. This one, while it's more transmissible, they say that the vaccine's effectiveness against this one is still about the same. The more troubling ones seem to be the South African and Brazilian strains. They have a specific mutation that maybe people are getting reinfected more by this one. And that one also, they say that uh, the vaccine's effectiveness might not be as much.
1: So, B1351, for those tracking the numbers, that's the South Africa strain or the one first identified in South Africa. That has a mutation it's called the E484K. They call it the EEC mutation, which seems to allow the virus to escape some of the antibody response either through natural infection or from vaccines and so the vaccines still work to some degree and may stop severe disease but they may be less effective at stopping an infection and the one seen in Brazil known as the P1 that also has that same eek mutation That mutation has been seen only in a handful of the United Kingdom variant, and so everyone's watching that closely. It's important to understand that you know we think we know what the map is right now of where the variants are and what we're dealing with, but the virus is constantly mutating. It's this is a uh, a moving target. So you know I don't think there's anything to panic about with these variants because the vaccines in general work, and you can retool them. But I think it's all kind of sobering that. This is going to take longer to get through this pandemic because the virus is going to find workarounds. And so we'll just have to stay on top of it.
0: The concern now is for public health experts is the easing of restrictions. You know, And we're seeing it all over as the cases start going down. I think it was Iowa, they lifted their state's partial mask mandate. So little things like this have experts worried that these new variants could uh, you know, help some type of boom going again. I
1: think... People should still be cautious and assume if you're around strangers, if you're close to other people, you know, that you need to wear a mask, you need to you know wash your hands and try to stay socially distanced. I realize that there are people who can't do that because they work in a hospital or they're essential workers, they're at the grocery stores, the you know, the drug stores. Some people they can't be totally protected against possible infection. The new B one one seven, this this UK variant it looks like it could be 35 to 45 percent more transmissible but it's not going to fall out of the sky it's not lurking in the bushes you know this this common sense measures to protect yourself ideally and try to limit the amount of new infections that's that's what we really need to do as a country is to put the clamp down on this thing and also cut off the virus's opportunities to mutate further
0: Joel Achenbach, science reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.